0: way way uh, to their time in the word and if you haven't noticed uh, we've got some fans set up at the door and I lost my jacket I promise not to lose anything else maybe a tie that'll be it and uh, um, just we, we've lost one of our air conditioners uh, don't, and thankfully um, God in his providence has seen fit that we would be putting money away that we would be ready for things like this it's good isn't it Tyler? So, he has provided for that beforehand, and we're thankful for that, and we'll get that thing fixed. And thankfully, also, he provided a nice, mild day. I mean, really, if you think about it, this is the mildest day we've had in a long time, and it's not that bad in here. I mean, you may not want to have a coat on, but if you do, that's fine, too. We got up this morning, and my one of my, my little girl, Kylie, went outside, and she came back, and Dad, it's like winter out there. You better a big, big coat on it. She had a big fur coat working this morning. At breakfast, she was working full coat. Uh, at breakfast. It wasn't that nice, but hey, it's, it's pretty, we're, we're very thankful for a little cooler weather, especially without uh, one of our air, air, air conditioners not operating. Well, hey, hopefully you're already in Philippians. <coughs> if not, we, we do have Bibles here in the back, and feel free to get up, and, if you didn't bring a Bible, to grab one of those. Uh, if you just forgot yours, you can use that this morning. If you don't have one, keep that as a gift from us to you. Everybody should have a copy of the Word of God um, and allow it to speak to you. So we'll encourage you to, to, to if you don't have one, get one because I'm just going to be in the Word of God this morning. It's kind of what we do around here at Grace Bible Church. We look at the Bible, Grace Bible Church, all right? So that's, that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at his Word this morning. And, and uh, So we're, we're, we've been studying the book of Philippians, this letter to the church of Philippi that uh, uh, Paul planted, and then he sent this letter when he was in prison. And uh, this morning, we're, the, the title of the message is Stand Firm. And if you have a, 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 one of the handouts uh, given here, On the back of it, you'll see it's got a place to take notes. So it says, Stand Firm. Anybody got one of these? Can we look at that? What does it say? Stand Firm. What's the next part? Part 1. So that means there's going to be what next week? Part 2. You guys are brilliant, all right? Um, Part 2 next week. This is Part 1, Stand Firm. Let's go to the Lord and ask Him, after we read His Word, just ask Him to help us understand it. But let's read here what we're going to be studying this morning from Philippians 4. Verse, beginning in verse 1, we'll go down to verse 7. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Judia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement and also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to do something that we cannot, and that is to change us from the inside out. And Lord, you promise us in your word that you will use your word by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring about change from the inside out. So Lord, we want you to do that because we don't always see what's on the inside, but often we see what is on the outside, which reflects what's on the inside. And Lord, we all need change. We all need to be made more and more into the image of your son. And that's our hope this morning. That's our prayer. That's our expectation this morning is be made more like Jesus Christ that so we might bring you glory and live in the, the joy uh, that you have called us to do. Uh, Lord, thank you for the privilege to be here and to be in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in World War II, as Hitler was uh, leading Nazi Germany and conquering much of Europe, with many of these countries not even willing to put up a fight, they just kind of laid down, many of them. They would already heard what he did and what he could do. So they just kind of laid down. Well, there's one country led by kind of a bulldog of a leader that would not go down without a fight. I mentioned his name last week about being a leader. Uh, That country was England, and that leader was Sir Winston Churchill. And on June 4, 1940, Churchill spoke to the House of Commons of the Parliament of the United Kingdom. And, uh, And the most famous part of that speech, maybe many of us have heard, if not, it's one of the most gripping Um, speeches you would ever hear, especially this part. Listen to what he said. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and the odious uh, apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. What a leader. What what a resolve. Churchill and England were going to stand firm no matter the cost. They would not be moved. And we as followers of Jesus Christ may be faced with many dangers, but maybe not like Hitler, but different, maybe not this threat of uh, Germany coming after to take over our country, but we are faced with daily pressures, daily difficulties that call us to cave in. To call us to quit. To call us to surrender. This world and the small g God of the world. The scripture calls Satan the small g God. It did not say small g, but it's little g, right? God, this God of this world, Satan. He hates us. The worldly system that we live in hates us and hates everything about Jesus and all those who follow him. And they don't want us to follow Jesus. They want us to give up. They want us to let our guard down. They want us to live for self. They want us to compromise The believers that Paul writes to here in Philippi are also (coughs) feeling this pressure to compromise, to give up, to look out for themselves, to allow the worries of the world to paralyze them and make no impact for the gospel. So God, through Paul here in, in, in Philippians, in this particular part of the letter, exhorts them to stand firm. Stand firm. And God today is exhorting all those who follow after his son, Jesus Christ, who are part of this local body and other local bodies all around the world who love Christ. He's calling all of us to stand firm. Look with me there at uh, the first part, or really the first verse there in chapter 4 again, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord my beloved. First notice how Paul refers to these believers in Philippi, I love this. Look what he says. My beloved brethren whom I long to see. Now remember that during Paul's second missionary journey, he comes to uh, the area of Macedonia and he comes to this city called Philippi. And if you remember when we started, if you, uh, if you were here when we started the book of Philippians, we were reminded this is the first record that we have anywhere that the gospel was taken to Europe. This is the, the the missionary endeavor that was going on throughout Acts, and now it's being taken to Europe. And he goes and he and he, and he comes to Philippi in Acts 16, and amazing things happen there. People, hearts are changed. They're given the Holy Spirit. A church is started there at Philippi, and, and and Paul loved these people. He spent time with them. In fact, on his third missionary journey, he goes to Philippi twice. He spent enough time with these people. He had grown to love them. He, he, and he begins his letter, with a, 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 chapter 1, with this exhortation and this reminding them that I love you. You're, 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 you're my beloved. I long to be with you. I pray for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So much he loved them. And here he ends his letter very much in the same way. He, he, he longs to see him again. He's already seen him probably more than any other church. As far as visits, he spent more time in Ephesus than any place else. But as far as visits, he spent more time in Philippi as far as just numbers of visits. And, and then it also says, he says, you're my joy and crown. You see, the Philippians follow the Lord, not perfectly, but faithfully. And he was proud of them. He, he was proud of the Philippians. He was saying, you're evidence that God has used me in ministry. I look at your life, I look at what's going on in the church of of Philippi, and and, and I can say, you're my joy and crown. Look what God is doing in you. It just warms my heart, what God is doing in you. Then look there at the very first word in verse 1. It says, therefore. And we see the word therefore, we need to ask the question what? What's it therefore? We always got to ask that question. It's important. The therefores in Scripture are very important. They're transitions. They tie something, they look back, and then they look ahead. Uh, and it points back to what we studied last week, to our new identity and our destiny. Our new identity is the fact that we are new creations, that God, those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's telling these people he's writing to, that by faith, he talked about in, in, in chapter 3, not of works, but by faith, trusting in what Christ has done on our behalf to, to bridge the gap that is there because of sin. Our sin deserves hell, it deserves judgment, it deserves the destiny of, of, of damnation. And yet God sent Jesus to die for what we deserved. And those who trust in what he did on their behalf are made new creations, it says. We're given a new heart, a new spirit that wants to honor God, that can now have the ability to honor God and love him and be brought back into right relationship with God. So those people, these people who have a new identity, then you also last week we saw they have a new destiny. They're going to be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever. So he says, therefore, those of you who have a new identity and a new destiny, therefore, based upon who you are in Christ and where you're heading, I have some exhortation for you. And Paul always does that. He always says it's based upon who you are and where you're headed. And here he's going to exhort them. Um, first of all, that, that just this, this word, to stand firm, it means to hold one's gra- ground. It's a, it's a military term. To stand firm in battle. And I was playing football, and when I went to the Atlanta Falcons, I would played against some pretty big linemen in college, but like all the linemen in the NFL were like six, seven, three, thirty, and you've seen some of those guys. I mean, they have a hard time fitting through the door height-wise and width-wise. It's huge. And in college, every once in a while, I'd get a lineman where I could bull rush. And a bull rush is you just, you come as hard as you can, and you just kind of run right through them and knock them down. Well, on my best day, I was 242. And I never played a game at 242 pounds, because I always, in the beginning of preseason stuff like that I would have I would lose weight just because of sweat all right on my best day I was 242 those guys are 320 330 so like that so I'm coming to practice and this guy he's about 67 about 330 I'm just going to bull rush this guy I hit him I don't think he moved an inch I knew I, I know I went backward and this guy was standing firm he was not going to be moved by me I can promise you that I learned not to run on those guys anymore but he was standing firm and the picture is standing firm you will not be moved no matter what comes your way He calls them to stand firm. Stand firm. I love what Paul says to another church, um, in the church of Corinth, and i preached on this text. It's actually one of my favorite verses. It's actually one of those those sermons that I preach on one verse, although I go back and I pick up all the context. But I love what he says to the church of Corinth. Very similar. He says this, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of God of the lord knowing that your toil your labor in the lord lord is not in vain be steadfast immovable and that's the same picture this idea to stand firm he's calling them to stand firm also notice there in in verse one he says to stand firm in the lord we we can't leave that out because it's not just we're going to stand firm in our own power we're not going to stand firm because hey we're we're americans right we're tough I mean, we work harder than everybody else in the country, in, in the world. I mean, we don't ever take vacation. We're tough, right? He's not saying that. Don't, don't stand firm in your own fire, He says stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in obedience to him and by his power, stand firm. The only way that we'll be able, able to stand firm against the difficult circumstances that come our way, and I know in this room, I can't say specifically what those are, but I know in this room many of you are going through difficult, difficult circumstances. You find yourself in a tough place. You find that the variables in your life are, are weighing you down. You won't be able to stand firm on your own. The only way you'll be able to stand firm, and any of us will ever be able to stand firm, is to stand firm in the Lord, in the power of Christ in us. Well, not only does this verse look back to what precedes us about our identity and our destiny, but it also looks ahead, what comes after it. Uh, notice there in, in verse 1 again, In this way... Some of your translations say, in this manner. Uh, I know the King James says this, so stand firm. And, and the word there that sometimes tr- it's translated in this way or in this manner or so, it, it, it's, it's now pointing ahead. You see that? Because of this, so stand firm or in this way. or Here's how to stand firm. I, I love Paul. He just lays out real simple. I want you to stand firm. I'm going to give you some ways you can stand firm. And in, in these verses that we're going to cover, um, actually in the, over the next two weeks, verses 2 through 9, We won't uh, won't get eight and nine this morning. Two through nine, he's going to give six different ways in which they can stand firm. He calls them to stand firm and he gives specific ways. This morning we'll just cover the first four. So I want to ask you to join here as we look at verses one through seven this morning. And we're going to be exhorted and challenged in four areas in which to stand firm. Why? So that we can glorify God and in doing so enjoy him forever as we stand firm in the Lord. Uh, look with me at verses 2 and 3. I urge Udia and Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Here you see the first area in which he, he, he calls them to stand firm. Stand firm in unity. Stand firm in unity. Uh, back in the first century, women uh, in church uh, sometimes didn't get along. Now, we've outgrown that, of course, in the church today. You know, the women always get along, right? Men always get along. Uh, uh, we, we just outgrown that. Of course, we laugh because it's funny. We, have, we, do, we haven't outgrown that. We still, in the church today, in our church and every other church in the wor- world, women and men sometimes don't get along. Earlier in this letter, Paul had urged the church in general to Unity. Look, look back, if you have your Bibles or look at verse, one, uh, verse 27 of chapter 1. You all remember this verse, that those who are here, it says, Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm, listen, in one spirit, in one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's unity. One spirit, one mind, striving together in the faith of the gospel. And, and then you look there in, in, in chapter 2, Philippians, verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Again, he's had a general call already in this letter to unity. So there, there must have been some kind of struggle with unity in the church of Philippi. Now, how would he have known that? guy named Epaphroditus who brought this letter from the church of Philippi, who he mentions in the letter, to Paul while he's in prison not only did he, bring, the, I mean, he didn't bring this letter, he took it back from Paul. Paul wrote the letter, took it back. But he brought a gift from the church of Philippi to Paul, and then he, Paul sent this letter back. So Epaphroditus and him had a talk. Some of the things that he knows about the church of Philippi he, weren't things he knew from years ago, but he must have known recently it happened. And Philippi, and, and Epaphroditus is sharing, here's some concerns, here's some things going on as he talked about the church. And there was an issue in the church. There was an issue with unity with some of the people in the church. Um... And not only is there a general issue, there's a specific issue. And, and, and it's, it's to such a degree that he feels called by the Lord to mention names. Look, look he says um, in, in 4.2, he gives two names of ladies. I urge you, Eudia, and I urge you, Syntyche. He, he names their names. And most likely, again, he heard about this in Epaphroditus, uh, this disunity between Judea and Syntyche must have been have been public, for him to mention it publicly, and so much so that this disunity this, this, this and this disagreement that's going on between them was threatening the unity of the church. Uh, most likely, we don't know for sure, but because it's such a public thing, people were probably trying to, starting to take sides. Well, I'm of the camp of Judea. Well, I'm over here with Syntyche. I can't believe what you did to her. And they started taking sides. And all of a sudden, the unity of the church is being threatened. Can two Christian women or people have a significant issue with one another so much that it threatens the unity of the local church? Yeah, you bet. Let me say this again. Can two, and I'm going to stress this, Christian women have a disagreement so great that it threatens the unity of the church? Well, Paul tells us. Look at verse. how he describes these women in verse 3. He says who have shared about them, he says, who shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement. We don't know which Clement this is. Also, and the rest of my fellow workers, listen, whose names are in the book of life. He says these women are, they're significant women that they had shared with him in the cause of the gospel. They, their names are in the book of life that these women are born again. That they, they truly know the Lord. That's how he describes it. And, and they've got this issue. He says that they've shared in the cause, but he doesn't sit back and say this. You know, that's their business, not mine. Or it's none of my business that they're at such odds that it's threatening the the unity of church. I'm not going to say anything. That's not my business. He doesn't say that. He loves them, and he he loves Christ's church too much to let them stay in disunity. Listen to that. How often do you hear things? Now, sometimes people just want to get in people's business. They don't really want help, right? They just want to get in people's business. You, right? That's not what he's talking about. He loves them. Does God want disunity in the body of Christ? No. And he knows that. He loves him. He loves the church. And instead, he calls them. Look what he says. He says, He tells them to live in harmony, be of the same mind, agree, come together. And notice also he says this, this phrase again in the Lord. Be unified because of your common bond and your call in the Lord. That's why he's calling them to come together, to, to live at peace, be unified. He doesn't bring up the specific dispute. He doesn't give us any insight on what's about. Now, we know that it's not some doctrinal issue that has to do with the gospel because it had to do with the gospel. It was a, a foundational doctrinal issue that the Scripture clearly taught. He would have brought it up. Why? Because he does it in other places it's obviously not that kind of dispute. We don't know exactly what it is, but it's not so high that he, he explains what it is. But no matter how important or significant, they may think that their dispute is, it's not more important than unity of the church. It's not more important than unity between the people of God. He calls them both. I love how he phrases it. He could have said it different. He could have just said, I urge Judea and Syntiki." Now, listen, he doesn't say that. He says, I urge Udia and I urge Syntyche. He calls them both, not together, but separately and together. He, he points them out and, and says you both have a responsibility. You both have a responsibility to be reconciled. He calls them both, not one. He doesn't allow for attitudes such as this. You've probably heard this or maybe even said it yourself. Well, I will reconcile, but she's going to have to make the first move. Well, after all, she's the one who sinned against me, so I'll be, I'll be happy to forgive her. But she's going to have to be the one that comes to me. And often people will even give you counsel. Now, you know, you, you didn't do anything wrong, so you wait till they come to you. Where do you find that in the Bible? You get that from like Oprah and Dr. Phil or something. Not the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that as believers, we're both responsible. Udi and Sitiki put your name in there, and you're saying, well, that's just Paul. Well, let's go to Jesus. All right, look what Jesus, are you red-letter people? We got a red-letter edition right here, okay? Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He's just right along what Jesus says. Therefore, any of you are presenting your offering at the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. It doesn't say if you have sinned against your brother. It says if they, you know say you have something against you. Now, it's not saying that you don't go to him if you've done something to them. He, he just knows the human heart, right? Jesus does. And he knows that most people are like, you know, I'm not the one who did wrong here. I'm not going. And Jesus just calls that out. You know they have something against you. You go to them. Both people are responsible for reconciliation. Now, now it seems as if there's already been some attempt of seeking unity between these two ladies because of what else Paul writes in verse 3. Look there with me. He he says, True companion, I ask you to help these women. Uh, this, This phrase, help these women, the word help, here suggests that they've already begun to try to reconcile. He says to come along and help, in indicating maybe they've already tried to, and they've come to an impasse, an impasse, and they, they need some help. So, so he calls out the true companion or yoke fellow, your translation may say, we don't know who that was. doesn't name their name. Uh, there's lots of debate who might that be. The reality is we just don't know. But he calls on this person, or maybe even some people say <clears throat> the body of Christ as a whole, true companion. All of you who are part of the body of Christ, he calls them to help them with disunity. Sometimes it takes the help of others to bring unity between people, doesn't it? Sometimes we just need someone else's input and be able to look at it from a different vantage point and to help people reconcile and be unified. But any threat to the unity of the body of Christ is serious. And peace must be pursued where it threatens the witness and the effectiveness of the local church. Let me just say this. There's two completely unbiblical responses to conflict. They're on two opposite ends of the spectrum. One is fight. You know people who just like to fight? I mean, they're going to fight. I mean, that, that, that is a pink chair. Alex, what color do you think it is? It's pink all the way, brother. What color do you think it is? It's blue. You ever see that? Like that? They, they just want to fight about everything. It's always about the fight, and they enjoy the fight. And then there's the other extreme there's a little conflict going on maybe disagreement and these this is the other people it's called flight you got fight and got flight people run from any kind of conflict any kind of difficulty and they're both unbiblical they're both not what god wants us to do he wants us to come together and be reconciled and to be unified and we all tend one way or the other either fight or flight somewhere on that scale and god calls us by his grace to be reconciled. To be unified. Unity in the body of Christ is a theme throughout all of Paul's letter. Here's another example. I love what he says in Ephesians. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I love that. To be diligent. To seek it out. Paul actually writes to the Church of Rome. He says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You've got to pursue peace. You've got to pursue unity. Let me ask you a question. Are there any resolved issues between you and anybody else in our body this morning? Any, any resolved issues at all? Well, it's not. It's not really that big a deal. I just spend, you know, some time every day thinking about how I'm upset at that person. Well, there's an issue. There's an issue. If you if you look at that person still, and you're, you've got animosity toward them, there's an issue. Oh, I forgave him, but there's still this deep down, boy. I'm. It's not right. You, you need to get together. If there is any issue, I urge you, like Paul did the Church of Ephesus, to be diligent to preserve the unity. Of the spirit in the bond of peace by God's grace if there's someone in this body that you need to seek that out you need to do it today don't wait do not wait the Lord through Paul commands us to first stand firm in unity now look at verse 4 with me rejoice in the Lord always again I will say rejoice Now this phrase is um, a present active imperative you all love it when I throw the English out there right But it's important. A present tense verb in uh, the Greek is this idea. It continues on. It's a present act of you're doing something. Imperative means it's a command. So it's an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time thing. He doesn't say, okay, uh, um, rejoice in the Lord once. And in fact, the word always gives even more strength. Rejoice in the word always. Uh, This should be the ongoing general attitude, this rejoicing in the Lord of a follower of Christ. That's what he's saying. This should be exemplify what you're about. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, right? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, uh, self-control. But love, joy, it's the second one of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Paul modeled this by being in prison. Think about this. When he's writing this, he's in prison. And all throughout this, we've seen this joy, rejoice, be joyful. All throughout this prison epistle, this prison letter. And he's in prison um and he also modeled it when he came to acts i mean he came to, to philippi in Acts 16. Now look what he what happened is he he needed to preach the gospel people's lives were being changed One demon possessed girl had a demon cast out of her and then, and the spirit of god come upon her it changed from the inside out and the people that were using her to make money kind of like a sideshow show in the circus got mad and they said paul's causing disruption in in the city so they put him in prison so what look what happens but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. He modeled this. I mean, he got thrown in prison. Right there in front of all of them. And he's still singing, praising God. And what's amazing, God shows up in a big way. And somebody else's family is impacted forever. The Philippian jailer comes to Christ. But he must have heard him, I guarantee. And I guarantee he told people as they read this loudly in front. They read this out loud to the whole, bo- the, the whole church. I mean, I remember when, I remember when Paul was singing in prison. That's one of the things that impacted my life so much. He was singing. Everything was going wrong for him, but he was singing. He was rejoicing in the Lord. Now, we notice what Paul does say he rejoices in there in in, in our passage. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. The Lord is the subject and cause for our rejoicing. Therefore, our rejoicing should never be affected by circumstances because God does not change is not affected by circumstances. Rejoice... It doesn't say in your circumstance. Please hear that. It doesn't say rejoice in your trial. It says rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. Now, there's may be circumstances or difficulty. There may be trials going on. He says rejoice in the Lord who does not change. He cannot be affected by anything. He is unchangeable. Now, I love what A.W. What Tozier, who's written a lot of great books, um, most of them are classics now, but he wrote something very important. I think it will help us here. What he says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, we could say it may not be the most important thing about us, but I would say it's definitely important. When we think about God, what comes to your mind? Because what comes to your mind about the person of God has everything to do with how you're going to react in difficulty. If he's just a God who doesn't care, he doesn't love us, he's unholy, he's hateful, he's not sovereign, he's not in control, he's changing. How will you react when difficulty comes? Not real well. But if you think that God is sovereign and loving and gracious and holy and immutable, which means unchanging, then how will you respond? You can rejoice in the Lord in the midst of your struggle. You can rejoice in him. No matter our circumstances, we can find reason to rejoice in the Lord always. Many people object to this. They say you can't command Paul cannot. I don't see. I'm that's not me. You've got a problem with this. It's Paul's fault, okay? If you don't like it, it's Paul. All right. Paul cannot command people to rejoice because rejoicing and joy is an emotion and a feeling. He can't command that. Who's he? Well, just inspired by God, inspired by God to write this. That's who Paul is. But you may say, okay, I, I love what what. Um, John MacArthur writes here is very helpful when we think about joy. But joy is not a feeling. It's a deep down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory and thus all is well no matter what the circumstances. Think about that. If we're commanded to do something, it's not based on how we feel, it's based upon truth. We rejoice in the Lord, whatever they are, whatever the circumstances are in your life today. Take your focus off the circumstances and place them on the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in His grace that saved you. Rejoice in His sovereignty. Rejoice in His love. Rejoice in His faithfulness. Rejoice in His holiness. Rejoice that He is immutable. He doesn't change. Rejoice in the fact that, it, that He causes all things to work together for good to them who love the Lord. Rejoice that He will never leave you or forsake you. Now did you hear me say rejoice that everything's falling apart? I didn't say that. I said, he says to rejoice in the Lord and take your focus and rejoice in all that he is and all that he's done and all that he's doing. That's what Paul is saying. Paul says, stand firm in rejoicing. Not only in unity, but in rejoicing. Now look at verse 5 with me. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Uh, Here is a third area in which Paul says to stand firm. Stand firm with a gentle spirit. Notice the word gentleness. Uh, some translations say graciousness. Uh, it's a humble, patient, steadfastness even in the midst of mistreatment. A humble, patient, gracious, I guess you say steadfastness even in the midst of mistreatment. And, and this too should characterize a believer, someone who's been changed from the inside out. It's also a fruit of the Spirit, gentleness. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. So... Let me just say it in another way. that Some of you might need a little more um, direct way to say that is What he's saying is, don't be a jerk. That's what he's saying. Don't be a jerk. It's gentleness and jerk. This is opposite. So sometimes we need to see, hear it the other way. Paul says, don't be a jerk. It, because you have a gentle spirit. And, and notice uh, um, who it is that's to, to know or experience our gentleness. Look what it says. It says, to all men believers and non-believers alike if there's a dispute with, a, uh, with another believer then deal with it in the spirit of gentleness and, and I love one translation that says reasonable, be, be reasonable about it don't fly off the handle if there's a dispute, you, you deal with your brother or sister in Christ with gentleness, with a gentle spirit and believe me gentleness is not weakness Jesus was gentle In witnessing to somebody who doesn't know the Lord. The goal is, is to win people, not the debate. Hey, you watch this stuff on YouTube and people post it all over the place, and man, this this man, you gotta see this, man. He just ripped that guy up. Why do we want to rip people up? What, why is that? Is it about being right or about them knowing the righteousness of God in Christ? If you win the debate, you'll probably lose the person. I'm not saying you don't say what's right and true, but how do you do it? Is it, the goal that they would know Christ or that you would be lifted up because you know all your facts. Don't be a jerk, right? That's what he's saying. With all men, believers and unbelievers. And if you're unkind to those who are unkind to you, we act just like the world, right? The wisdom like that comes from the world. In fact, um, James pointed this out in James 3.17. It says, but the wisdom from above is pure then peaceable, gentle, reasonable full of mercy and good fruits unwavering without hypocrisy gentleness now look what paul writes at the end of verse five he says the lord is near i love that this would be an encouragement to the people at the church of philippi Uh, paul is saying that no matter the difficulty there are difficult people in the world the difficult people in your life the lord is near to you to comfort you and empower you Uh, the psalmist um, picks up on this. It says, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my, God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The nearness of God is good. And the psalmist is comforted to know that the Lord is near him. He's with him. And, and think about this. this. That's the Old Testament. The Spirit didn't indwell anybody then. Now if you're in Christ now, he indwells you. The nearness of God, the Lord is near. He's with you personally. And that would encourage these believers and should encourage us to be gentle in spirit no matter what anyone else is doing no matter the circumstance that's coming our way well look at verses six and seven with me here these are probably the most two of the most famous verses we'll deal with another one later in verse 13 chapter four but two of the most used verses in all of philippians many people use these often Um, But look what it says in verse 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Here we see the fourth area in which Paul calls us to stand firm. Stand firm in peace. Stand firm in peace. Obviously some people in the church of Philippi were struggling with a lack of peace. They were anxious. Notice this first phrase. Be anxious for nothing stop worrying about anything nothing he says it points to the fact there's nothing of which we should worry about to, or to have unreasonable anxiety that's what he's talking about it just consumes us. i don't know about you all this can happen to me something can happen and man, i'm thinking about it all the time and oh gosh what's going to happen and, and what, what's this person going to say and if they say this what's going to happen here see what happens and, and we usually go to the worst possible scenario don't we Let's be honest. When this happens, we just run down here as negative as possible. Oh, Oh, man. (gasps) And that's what he's talking about. Don't be anxious. Don't don't worry. This unreasonable anxiety. Uh, Some people say uh, to, to this call by Paul, don't be anxious or be anxious for nothing. But you don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know what I've been through. Well, just to remind you, when Paul writes this, where is he? He's in prison. He's in prison. He doesn't know for sure if he's going to get out, if he's going to die or not, to live as Christ, to die as Gethim. I mean, you really want to go to the Lord? Lord released him. He can have confirmation possible. He's going to get out, but he could have died. But he writes this while he's in prison. And Jesus says something very similar. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew six twenty five. I'm just going to read this passage for us, and it'll speak for itself. Matthew six twenty five to thirty four. Matthew 6, 25-34. and This is part of the Sermon on the Mount we've quoted already, but look, look what Jesus says here. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, not for your bo- nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow, sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them, are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, that they do not toil nor spin. And I say to you that not even the not not even Psalm in all his glory clothe himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? do not worry then saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you so do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself each day has enough trouble of its own that's pretty clear Jesus said don't worry to worry shows a lack in the of trust in god and his plan it's an attack on the sovereignty and the goodness of god when we worry we're questioning that god is in control of all things we're questioning his goodness just like satan got adam and eve to question the goodness of god in genesis 3 that's what he wants to happen today we question the goodness of god when we don't trust in him when we worry so god we just don't really trust you with this that's what we're saying i don't i know we don't think we're saying that but that's what we are doing Now look at what Paul says to to do instead of worry. But, here's a a contrast, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Instead of worrying about anything, we're to pray about everything. Notice the words prayer and supplication. It's it's emphasizing specific prayers, specific things, not just in general, but specific needs. This word supplication, that's what it means. Notice how the, this, the attitude uh, in which they're to pray. It says, with thanksgiving. And he's calling them to think about all that God has given them already. I mean, just think what all he's done for you, Church of Philippi, Church of Grace Bible. Just think about that. With thanksgiving, and there's this idea of knowing that he is good, and he wants the best for us, and we can trust him to help. With thanksgiving, knowing that you're taking it, the only person can deal with it, the only person can change things is God. Notice what Paul says when we pray instead of worrying about circumstances or situations. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the promise for those who pray with thanksgiving, who pour out their hearts to God in petition. The peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that God will answer all requests just like we ask him. Or just like we think would be best for us. Please understand that. It's not a blanket promise. Anything you ask him, whatever it is, whether it's good or bad, he's going to come through. Uh, I love what Peter O'Brien says about this. He says, the word of assurance is independent of their petitions being answered by God in the affirmative. They're assured, not that he will come through like you want him to, but he will. his peace that surpasses all understanding, all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's what they're promised. Not necessarily the answer to their prayer like they want. Look at the phrase there, and the peace of God. God possesses peace. It's a part of his nature. There's never war in God. <laughs> he, he, he is peace. And, and, he, and he gives his peace to his people. Now notice how this peace is described. Which surpasses all comprehension. It goes beyond any peace that humans can even fathom. If you can think about the most peace, peaceful thing, the most peaceful person you could possibly think of, You're not even close. It's not even close. It goes beyond our comprehension. It's unfathomable. His peace. He never worries. He's never anxious. He never wonders what's going to happen. And it's his peace that Paul says will do something. What does it say his peace will do? Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard here is a military term. A detachment of soldiers that stands guard around a city. So the picture here is this word. They would know this being a Roman colony. They know about the Roman soldiers. This, this picture of a garrison around the city, protecting the city completely. That's the picture they would have. And it says that God's peace will guard, will guard. He'll set up a garrison around. No one can get in to, take, to, to, to cause you to worry, to, to, to do anything wrong to you. No one. And then it says it will guard what? Your hearts and your minds. Often the word hearts and minds are used synonymously. He uses them a little bit differently. And I really believe what he's talking about. Your your, your mind, your will, and emotions. He'll guard your your thoughts. He'll guard what you do. And he'll guard your emotions. He'll guard your hearts and your minds. In the midst of whatever this is, as we cry out to him, with his peace, he will guard that. And notice it says in christ jesus this promise is only realized for those who are in christ jesus this is not a a blanket statement for everybody in the world this is only a statement for those that that pray and trust god in the midst of their trouble that are in christ that are his by faith in, in christ why because he is peace we can have peace we can have the peace of god When we have concerns and we bring them to God, we are saying, God, I trust you. I trust you. And I know that you want what's best for me. So I'm casting this care, this concern, this circumstance, this trial on you, knowing that you will do what's best. God, through Paul, exhorts us and these believers he wrote to initially to stand firm in peace. So what are you worrying or anxious about this morning? Well, what is it that, 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 that is consuming your thoughts? And Oh, if this happens and, and you're, you're, this anxiousness is overtaking you, whatever it is, cry out to God. With prayer and supplication, be specific. With thanksgiving, expect Him to do what He promises. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, all understanding, will Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It may not change the circumstance, but it will change your heart. It will change how you look at the circumstance. Or are you standing firm in the Lord this morning? Paul says, by the grace of God, because of your identity and your destiny, to stand firm in unity, to stand firm in rejoicing, to stand firm with a gentle spirit, and to stand firm in peace. Let me just say this again. I kind of mentioned this. You cannot stand firm unless you're in the Lord. And if you're not in the Lord, if you're not in Christ Jesus, then you are standing in a really bad place right now. You're standing in a place where you're condemned because of your sin. And God, because, yes, he's a loving God, but he's also holy. He's also just. And he must punish sin. Because He's a holy God. He's a just God. He must punish it. And if you're not in Christ, then you stand under His condemnation, under His righteous and just judgment. Because you're guilty. We're all guilty, right? We've all sinned, right? And fall short of the glory of God. Send time, more time than we can even admit. Or would admit. And we deserve His judgment. We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. He sent Jesus to die in our place, to take our punishment. He made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He says that if you'll trust in Jesus, you'll trust what he did on your behalf. He died for your sin. He took your penalty upon it. If you'll trust in him, accept that gift to you. That he'll take Jesus' righteousness, put it in your account... And he took Jesus' sin and put it in Jesus' account. What an exchange. And then God says, you're the righteousness of of my son. Because you trusted him. And then when you move over here to a right relationship with God. And then you're standing in a good place. You're a child of God. You're forgiven. You're holy, blameless. You're being sanctified. You are sanctified, it even says. You're justified. You're glorified. You will be glorified. That's a good place to stand. And then when you're there, you can actually stand firm in the midst of difficulty. Before then, you can't. All other ground is sinking sand, the hymn says. On Christ's solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let me exhort you, if you don't know Christ this morning, trust in Him. Be in Him. And if you do know Him, stand firm in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, we pray that we, by Your grace, because of who You have made us, we will stand firm firm when everything else around us is telling to give up, to quit, to lose ground, to run away, would help us stand firm, to stand firm in unity, to stand firm with a gentle spirit or to, to, to stand firm in rejoicing or to stand firm in peace as we cry out to you with our concerns and our cares, knowing that we can trust you to do what you promised, and that is to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So will we trust you to do that this morning? In Jesus' name, amen.